Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Joe Butler, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing, the behemoths of the Great Lakes. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we'll be broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Joe a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Joe your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll be trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast anytime. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc. Doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Joe Butler about how to catch those huge trout and salmon. New from Winston Rod for 2007, Boron 2T Rods, new technology, traditional feel. This series combines the feel of our traditional action rods with the lightness and responsiveness of our latest technology. These rods offer the ultimate and delicate presentation while still retaining a good measure of power and reserve, thanks to the dynamic properties of our Boron 2 technology. These four-piece rods are available in three through five weight and retail for $625. They are designed and crafted at Winston Shop in Twin Bridges, Montana, and feature the traditional Winston green finish and Winston unconditional lifetime warranty. Cast the new Boron 2T at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Well, before we introduce Joe, we'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away. For our drawing tonight, we will be giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine, a premier fly fishing magazine, two pairs of tickets to one of the International Sportsman's Expositions, and an autographed copy of Joe Butler's book, Big Trout on Flies. So you have four chances to win tonight. Now, if you haven't registered already for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Joe's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. Joe Butler specializes in catching trophy trout. It took 20 years to beat his world record fly-caught brown trout, a 20-pound, 3-ounce giant. And he also held the world record kokanee salmon on a fly. By his count, Joe has caught well in excess of 1,000 trout over 10 pounds. Imagine that. His experience and success have brought him to television, and he's been the subject of over 100 written articles. Always in demand at clinics, seminars, and shows across the country, you can see Joe in Denver later this January at the International Sportsman's Expo, where his subject will be, you guessed it, giant trout. He's also authored six books, including Big Trout on Flies. He's a member of the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame, an active supporter of the Federation of Fly Fishers and Trout Unlimited, as well as Boy Scouts of America. Youngsters have been a particular benefit, uh, and his attention and teaching skills for youth have, have been well acknowledged. Joe's guided trips for big trout fill very quickly, and he leads excursions to the North Platte and Missouri Rivers, Wyoming and the Yellowstone Country, as well as Labrador and the Great Lakes. 
we're very pleased to have Joe with us tonight as he tells us how he goes after the behemoths of the Great Lakes. Joe, welcome yes, to sir. Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, guys. I'm looking forward to it, and uh, this sounds like a real good endeavor. I think people will get a lot from it. Yeah, we're going to have fun. Well, Joe, I was uh, brushing up on, on your book today, uh, Big Trout on Flies, and I'll tell you, one thing this book has of yours is a lot of pictures. And I, I tell you, I have never seen an author's book with more pictures of the author with Big Trout than yours. So I, I think the proof's here. And, and uh, like I said earlier, I did check all the fish. They aren't your mounts or anything like that. So they are different fish. So I'm very, I'm very impressed. <laughs> well, I'm tickled to, to hear that because uh, I put a lot of emphasis in the proof in the pudding. And... Uh, through my informative years, uh, I heard a lot of different people speak about big fish, and uh, quite frankly, uh, I, I needed to see more than just their words, and uh, I wanted to see their results, and that's why I'm really keen on uh, proving out what we uh, say and do and recommend does work, and I, I do that as often as possible. Well, you should have the proof there, that's okay, for sure. Okay. <laughs> well, um, Joe, let's, you know, we've got a lot to talk about tonight, and uh, for the folks just to kind of give them a heads up of what's coming down the road here, we're, we're, we want to focus on browns, but you've told me that the kings and the steelhead are right in the mix and all part of the same story here, so uh, it looks like we're going to be talking about three uh, behemoths of the Great Lakes, as we call them, um, and we'll talk about locations, where to find them up in the Great Lakes, time of year, the equipment flies that we might use up there, and then your presentation and strategy for catching these big guys, um, and, um, and then also, you know, what it takes to, to do a trip up there and that kind of thing. So lots of, lots of information to cover here. Now, um, what we're talking about primarily two great lakes, Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, Lake Ontario is my favorite brown trout fishery. And then Lake Erie has come on real strong in the last few years for steelhead and soon to be one of the better brown trout fisheries, just started in the last few years. What all types of fish can you catch up there, Joe? We, we've talked about the three salmonids, uh, and you might want to elaborate on those, but are there other fish as well that you look for? You absolutely have uh, everything available. It just depends on what you want to focus on. and. Uh, a guy like myself, uh, the brown trout is uh, the premier fish, but it goes hand-in-hand hand with the runs of king salmon when they're uh, entering the rivers, getting ready to spawn. Uh, they attract a lot of attention, especially when they're dropping eggs. And they always spawn first, so you got the kings first, and then you get the browns, and then you get the steelhead, and you'll get some coho salmon, some Atlantic salmon, and an occasional smallmouth bass or a lake trout will show up too. But you, you virtually have everything that uh, this country offers uh, up in that, that uh, country. It's just an amazing fishery, and, and there's no limits as to uh, what you might uh, get involved in. If you go to the right area at the right time, uh, there's just everything up there. Joe, you talked about, uh, you just mentioned the spawning cycle there uh, with the, the kings being first. Um, now, the kings are going up to spawn, and the, the kings will, will die up there, I take it, just like all salmon. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, the king salmon is a four-year fish, and 
it only spawns once. And when they, they come up the rivers, their mission is to spawn and to die. And uh, so you have a, a window of opportunity there to catch king salmon on a fly rod for about three weeks, and then they start to turn and they start to uh, uh, get in pretty pretty sad shape. And uh, by that time, we're, we quit concentrating on kings and we go strictly to the browns and the steelhead, which come in and uh, take over the river and the spawning beds once the kings finished up. How big do these different salmonids get? Well, the the records up there for king salmon are around 48 to 52 pounds. We've landed them up to 52 inches. I I would presume that was close to 50 pounds. I've gotten a couple 48 pounders, a lot of them in the 40 pound class. But I'd say the average king, and especially on a fly rod, is going to run around 17 to 28, 29 pounds. That's your average. The brown trout uh, will average in most streams anywhere from 5 to 12 pounds, with many bigger, uh, a lot of 15 to 25-pound fish. If you uh, uh, seek them out and you search for them, you'll find the bigger browns. Steelhead averaging nowadays around 6 to 12 pounds with the occasional 15 to 20-pounder. And I guess the coho salmon is worth mentioning, too, even though some years there are not too many of them. I have landed them up to uh, 27 pounds, and there's some massive uh, cohos up there. The, the number one and number two world record cohos are both out of Lake Ontario, and that was a 30 and a 33-pounder. Those are larger than any of the coho salmon that exist anywhere else on the planet, including Alaska. Well, Joe, when didn't you just catch a, a really big brown this year on your trip out there? Yeah, I, I got one of the biggest male browns I've ever gotten up there. I landed a male that was around 24 pounds. And up to this year, the bigger browns were the females. I, I've landed about six other big browns over 20 pounds up in that region, and I got about a 25 and a 24-pound female uh, four or five years ago. And then I, the largest male I had ever caught up to this year out of that drainage up there was a 21-pounder, and I got that one about four years ago. So this one I got this year was a, a magnificent fish, and... Uh, I'm going to have I'm having it mounted by Del Canny, who is a world famous taxidermist and fisherman himself, and I I, I will be showing it at my shows that I'm doing this spring. Uh, hopefully, it turns out as good in the mount as it did when I caught it. It's a magnificent and fat fish, just extremely fat for a male brown. Now the females usually are, are larger. When when they get to that size, are they still capable of breeding? Yeah, the brown trout uh, don't have the problems about breeding that some of the other fish do. King salmon and coho salmon, right. uh, virtually uh, no, no spawning uh, success, but uh, that's theory. You know, everybody has their own opinion. In my opinion, there's always going to be some spawning success if you if you have fish going in a lot of different drainages and finding different uh, waters. They will have a nominal amount of success. The brown trout seems to do the best, and uh, the rainbows do some uh, some good spawning up there too. Steelhead a little less, king salmon and cohos even less. But there's always going to be a marginal success ratio because Mother Nature always provides. And uh, for any man to state that there's no successful spawning, that's that's a real egotistical statement, and I would never make that. Well, when you say that uh, about the salmon. 
so are all the salmon then stocked? Yeah, virtually all the salmon are stocked. And it uh, wasn't too many years ago the, the lakes were considered virtually devoid and dead of, uh, of uh, sport fish. They had uh, uh, so much pollution up there 40 years ago that the uh, native fish died off. And then they had the lamprey eels uh, taking over the few fish that were surviving, the lake trout were in the lakes and the lampreys were wiping them out. So they had a double whammy up there. They had to control before they could even think of introducing sport fish. So first thing was they uh, they ended all the commercial interest that uh, dumped any kind of pollution into the rivers, that were dumped into the lakes, totally shut down all the factories and plants that had any kind of discharge into the rivers. And then they uh, found the lamprey spawning beds which weren't too many of them, but they were a, a big portion of the lamprey was were spawning in a limited um, number of spawning areas, and they were able to electroshock the lamprey uh, uh, fry, and that killed off most of them. So once they controlled those two things, they started introducing salmonoids and trout back into the lakes, oh, about 20-some years ago. And they didn't even know whether they were going to be successful or not until they started coming up the rivers and the locals started seeing them and going down there and catching them and snagging them and everything else. So it was kind of a, a real uh, pleasant thing to discover, and uh, n nobody knew what the re results would be until that started to occur. What is the spawning cycle then for the brown trout, Joe? Brown trout is uh, a fall spawner. It's uh, always determined by the water temperature and the flows and uh, in the Great Lakes region they have uh, uh, the king salmon dominating the spawning bed so that uh, that makes sure that the browns spawn a little later up there than they would normally because they can't come in and take over the beds until the kings are done so what you have in the Great Lakes is a uh, uh, king salmon dominating all the spawning beds and then you have the browns in the area and they're uh, waiting their turn and in the interim they're going to be eating eggs as much as they can and minnows there's a zillion type of minnows up in that country which is the reason for the super growth of the brown trout and uh, it just works hand in hand with uh, creating the best of the best situation for giant fish because these browns up there are growing three to three and a half pounds a year which is as good as it gets anywhere on the planet Mm -hmm. And so a very young brown up there attains a size that it would take years to attain somewhere else. And I, I've noticed 10-pound uh, browns in the Great Lakes region that are not even mature enough to spawn, whereas a 10-pounder here in the West would be uh, your most mature spawning browns. And those browns, Joe, live the majority of their life in, in the Great Lakes and only come into the streams to spawn. They're not... They don't take residence in the streams at any other time, is that correct? That is correct, and that's because of water temperature. All the streams that enter the Great Lakes are way too warm during the summer months, so your trout uh, evacuate the streams in the late spring and go back to the lakes. And then all you have in the streams in the summertime are bass and uh, uh, warm water species. Uh, you have wa uh, walleye, you have northern pike, you have perch, you have bullheads, you have uh, uh, mostly smallmouth bass, a few largemouth. And then when the water starts to cool in the fall, you have the, uh, the other situation bringing the uh, fish back uh, for the early feeding and then the spawning immediately after that. 
So when we're talking uh, about fishing for these uh, different uh, species, we're really talking about the cold water periods of the year. You know, the key to big fish uh, anywhere on the globe, in particular the Great Lakes, is, is water and water temperature. That is the key. And uh, when we, as we go on through this program, uh, I'll reemphasize that over and over again. Because people are always asking me, where do you fish? Well, I fish where the fish are. And the fish are where the waters are flowing the best and where the water temperature is the best. And that is the, the key to that country up there. So I watch weather patterns. I watch for snow. I watch for rain. I watch for water releases from dams. I watch uh, when the Erie Canal is drained. I watch all of the things that will stimulate the trout to come from the lake into the rivers. And if you don't keep track of that, you don't have a chance because the rivers that are still low and warm will not have anything in them. You, you would be uh, uh, wise to avoid those places and go to where the uh, part of the lake where they're getting rain and snow. And it's such a big area that you could have rain and snow in one portion of it and 100 miles down the road you wouldn't have any. So that's really key and paramount to my success up, up there. And that's why I fish so many different waters. I have about a dozen streams that I, I like to fish, but it all depends on rain, snow, water temperature. Well, it sounds like there's a, a lot of driving going on back and forth, <laughs> depending on the weather. A lot uh, of driving and a lot of walking. And yeah. anybody who's lazy and not up to that task, uh, you, you're just never going to have the success. Uh, when I go to a stream, I don't just look over the bridge to see what's going on right by the bridge. Uh, if I'm confident there's enough water flow and a, good, a decent temperature, I will uh, – check out uh, a of individual streams in a lot of different areas, from the lake all the way up to as far as the fish can go. Well, Joe, before we get in more into the locations and those kind of conditions, I want to just get one more question out of the way, because um, you had brought it up, uh, the, the fishing of uh, snagging. Uh, is that still allowed in New York, or has that been outlawed at this point? Yeah, it was outlawed about eight, nine years ago. When I first started going to the Great Lakes, which was 19 years ago, that's all that was going on was snagging. There were no sport fishermen. We were the first fly fishermen to hit those rivers 19 years ago, and we were, uh, we were like uh, uh, considered aliens from outer space by the locals because they couldn't believe we would be out there with flies on a fly rod trying to land those big king salmon and brown trout, and we, we, we put on quite a show for the locals, but most of the locals were just after meat for the table, so they didn't have any problem with snagging and bringing in fish any way they could because they didn't care about the challenge or the sport until snagging ended. Then they had to learn how to sport fish and how to fly fish to have any success at all because nowadays there's no snagging on any stream out in that whole region, thank God. Well, uh, Joe, let's take a quick break here. When we return, we'll be talking about where Joe fly fishes for the behemoths of the Great Lakes. This portion of our show is brought to you by the Western Canadian Fly Fishing Exposition. The fifth anniversary Western Canadian Fly Fishing Exposition will be held on February 2nd through 4th, 2007 at the Max Bell Center in Calgary, Alberta. This is the largest fly fishing specialty show in all of Canada. Featuring some of the best fly anglers on the planet, you can attend demonstrations, presentations, seminars, and workshops on subjects as diverse as fly fishing strategies, presentation and techniques, fly tying, and outdoor writing. See the latest equipment, 
learn casting techniques at the presentation pool, and fly tying methods at the tying theater, and talk to the outfitters and lodge owners. Sponsored by Fly Fusion Magazine, all this and more is waiting for you at the Western Canadian Fly Fishing Exposition, February 2nd through 4th in Calgary. Go to www.flyfishingevents.com for more details. That's flyfishingevents.com. See you there. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Joe Butler about fly fishing in the Great Lakes for big trout and salmon. If you'd like to ask Joe a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Joe your most important questions. We'll receive your questions immediately and be trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Uh, Joe, before we launch into where all you like to go uh, on those tributaries, tell me a little bit about these, uh, these trips that you lead all around different parts of the country and up into Canada. Uh, about 30 years ago, uh, I started really getting into the big fish, big trout fishing, and I started getting a lot of interest uh, along with where I was going, where I was having success. And I didn't have too many sources for me to um, find new waters, so I had to pretty much find them myself. I had a, a couple mentors like Del Canty from Leadville and uh, guys like that, and and I realized there was a real lack of information and, a, and very little information on big fish. Everybody had their tales and their stories about fishing around the West, uh, catching the normal fish, you know, the average fish, and occasionally getting a good fish. But I, I was tuning in into just waters that had the best opportunity for big fish, and I was finding a lot of interest when I was doing my seminars for Trout Unlimited and Federation of Fly Fishers from guys who hadn't had the opportunity to catch too many big fish. So I just decided to put my own little programs together and host the groups to these different areas and show them where to do it and how to do it. And, boy, it just went over like gangfire, and uh, everybody seemed to really enjoy it. And uh, I mostly do what we call good old boy trips, shared expenses. I charge a small fee, and then we share everything else. And uh, I do have bigger trips where they're a little more expensive, but they last a week. And then I have my three-day safaris that are just uh, in Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, and places like that, and all exceptional places, all areas where most guys will hook many of the fish of their lifetime. Wow. And uh, that's my specialty is if a guy wants or gal wants big fish, they should give me a call. <laughs> Great. And Joe, where can they? What is your phone number and your website address um, where they can? Okay, find it's uh, butlerfishing.com, and it's seven two zero six three five two six five six, and that's my my number. And I uh, pick up and return calls as fast as I possibly can, and then I I will have a list uh, of all my trips that'll be ready in about two weeks and I'll be uh, handing them out at the first show, which is in Denver at the convention center at the end of the month, and then I'll be proceeding to do a lot of programs and shows after that. But anybody uh, out of state can certainly uh, just call me on my number, and I'll be happy to send them a list of the trips and, and, and tell them about all the, the fine details that go with each one. Why don't you give them that number one more time, Joe? 720-635-2656. And just to kind of follow up on that, uh, you said uh, uh, 
Well, you didn't really say, but what what is the the date ranges that you run trips and where? Um, well, for fishing kind of in the west, uh, spring and fall are definitely the best times for big fish, and then in the Great Lakes region, it's always the fall, October, November. I'm there for six to eight weeks. And uh, then I do have some summer trips where we specialize in different types of fishing, like uh, some of the lakes, terrestrials and hoppers and uh, caddis fishing. And then I have some, uh, some off-the-cuff trips that uh, we do according to demand, like Labrador, Saskatchewan, uh, Costa Rica. And those are special request trips and we'll do those upon demand. But uh, the most popular trips I have right now are always the Great Lakes in October, November, and then uh, the North Platte River near Gray Reef and Boyson Reservoir in the spring. We do that the whole month of April into May. And then I have the other trips spread out uh, throughout the summer and the uh, late spring and the early fall. Well, let's, uh, let's go back to the Great Lakes and to the tributaries. Uh, one question that has, uh, has come in, Joe, do you fish the lakes themselves at any time, or do you, are you just fish, fishing the rivers and streams that are tributaries? You know, that's a very good question, and again, it goes back to where are the fish. And sometimes when you have a dry fall and not much moisture, you do fish the lake much more than you normally would because the fish will be staging near the inlets, and I know four bays where they hang out in big numbers, and if there's not adequate rain or snow or releases from dams, they will be in those places there, and they'll stay there until they have a safe volume of water to go up. Now, when there's normal years, and I'd have to say 70% of the time we'll have what I consider a normal year where you have adequate rain, starts in usually August, goes through September, into October and November, then the fish, as soon as it's safe, will hit those rivers. And as long as the flows stays safe and high, they'll stay in the rivers. But if it drops, they'll get out of there and they'll go right back to the lake or they'll go up to uh, the dams where they can sit underneath the dams and they don't stay in that shallow water unless it's safe. And the more water you have, as a rule, the better off you are. And uh, there can be uh, uh, too much water. Like last year, we had some flooding conditions and that really changed things. But we still were able to find the fish by just analyzing the situation and going up to where the fish could go because the fish will go as far as it can go in most streams. So you need to know where all the dams are, all the diversions, and uh, in the heavy flow waters you need to realize they can go up a lot further those years than they can in other years. Well, when you said uh, they're, they're out there holding in these areas in the, in the lakes, uh, can you target the fish there from a boat or from the shore? or Forget the boats, yeah. In the fall, you don't need boats. The fish are going to be right offshore near the inlets, and you just have to uh, re realize that these fish are staging. They're, uh, they're pre-spawn. They're usually very active. They're very aggressive, but they are, uh, because they're a brown trout, most of them, they're very nocturnal by habit. So fishing during the middle of the day on the lake would be a waste of time unless you had a, a raging storm that would keep them in. I would concentrate in the mornings and the late afternoons in the bays on the lake. Now, if you had a stormy day, you can certainly fish a little later in the morning and a little earlier in the afternoon. But as a rule, I wouldn't bother with the lake fish except right at first light for about two hours 
and then in the evening from three to dark. The rest of the time I would spend on the streams and the rivers. And, and that, that applies to almost any lake and river situation I can think of across the whole country. Well, then what, what streams uh, into the two Great Lakes are you generally targeting for your activity? Well, it, it's all changed. Uh, obviously, everybody knows about Oak Orchard. In fact, we've got some people inquiring about Oak Orchard. Right. It was even voted one of the top streams in the country uh, last year in Angler Magazine. Well, I certainly would have agreed with that a few years back, but I would disagree with it now. It's been overfished. They have too liberal of a kill up there. The biggest problem in the Great Lakes that I have seen in 19 years is the three fish limit. You are allowed to kill three trophy browns every day. You can kill three trophy steelhead and rainbows every day. And that has hurt the fishery more than anywhere, especially on the streams that have been well publicized. Oak Orchard has been over publicized, overfished, and way too many fish have been taken out of there. They, they need to cut that limit down to one trout a day, and that would help a lot. But they, they re refuse to do it, and it has really, really shown the, the negative side the last few years. Oak Orchard is a very poor fishery now compared to what it used to be. So I have gone, concentrated my efforts on waters that don't receive the publicity, don't uh, get uh, on TV every week, and don't get listed in Angler's Magazine as the top uh, four or five uh, fisheries in the country. And that, that in itself wouldn't hurt the fishery if they just limit the kill. A three fish any size limit is way, way, way too much for any stream, and they can't hold up to that kind of a, a, a fish kill. That's just too many. Well, the, the one question here from Ray um, Markowitz uh, in Angola, New York, he says he just lives minutes away from Cantagoras Creek, I think is the way. Cataragas. Cataragas, okay. Uh, an 18-mile creek on Lake Erie. And, but he says um, um, also that, he knows those are famous, but he can, is, can he fly fish for browns to, with some degree of success on his home streams? Uh, Absolutely. Lake Erie is the new kid on the block. I have been fishing it for about six years now, and it's one of the finest steelhead waters in the world. And we have incredible steelhead fishing. But in the last two, three years, we've been seeing more and more browns in that 5 to 15 pound range actually saw an 18 and a 16 pounder caught out of the Lake Erie streams the last two years and have found many browns, but they don't go up the streams as early as they do on Lake Ontario. And it's because Lake Erie is a shallower lake and it stays warm longer. Lake Ontario is a deeper lake, cools off sooner, and gets the normal spawning browns in October and early November into the late November. Lake Erie they come in mid-November into December, and it's, again, because of the water temperature. Now, once in a while, if you have early cold weather with a lot of rain and snow like they had this year, or I should say 2006, you, we had quite a few browns show up earlier than normal in Lake Erie, but still much later than Lake Ontario. So I would tell Ray to be looking in those streams in Lake Erie in late November throughout December, and in him living there, 
he's going to see some incredible fishing because I know they're there. It's just so late. they got so much snow that time of year. You almost have to live there to take advantage of it. Mm, good tip. Good tip yeah, for, for sure. Well, Joe, could you give us an idea of what your strategy is in terms of determining where you want to fish to target these big guys? Well, it's all about weather patterns. Uh, I follow the weather patterns, and uh, I go where the rain's at. And uh, if it's raining on the Lake Erie streams, I'm headed over there. If it's raining on Lake Ontario streams, I'm headed over there. I also uh, know they release water out of Burt Dam on 18 Mile, and they release it on Oak Orchard. And uh, so if you didn't have rain, you can, uh, you can always check and see if they're releasing any water. They do release water out of Burt Dam on 18 Mile a few times a week. And then over at Lake Erie, if they're, they're getting some rain and it's not too heavy, you'll have great fishing immediately as the water rises. But if it rains too heavily and too much, then you have to wait a day or two for Lake Erie streams to clear. And that's every stream except for Cataraugus. Cataraugus is a silt bottom stream. It takes five days for it to start to clear where you can fish it after a rain. All the other streams in Lake Erie and all my favorites, which are the Elk, the Walnut, the uh, 18-mile, uh, Chautauqua, Canada Way, Little Canada Way, those all clear within one day of a heavy rain because they're shale-bottom streams. So knowing all that, that's where, what determines where I'm going to go. Now, Lake Ontario, they're, they're partially uh, silt bottoms and partially rock bottoms. They take anywhere from a day and a half to three days to clear after a heavy rain. But if it's just drizzling and raining not real heavy, you are wise to be on the Lake Ontario streams right during the weather because the fish will come in as it's raining, and they'll come in gangbusters, more big fish than anybody's ever seen. And then the next day it could be clear and bright and everything stops again, and you wait to the next cycle. So this is definitely a place where you're looking for bad weather, but not too bad a weather. <laughs> I call it good bad weather. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people say, oh, that's bad weather. Well, I call it good because uh, ever since my early days at fishing Dillon Reservoir up here in Colorado, I recognized that the worse the weather, the better the brown trout fishing. And that uh, followed me through my informative years into Flaming Gorge where I caught my world record brown trout right after a big storm and dropped about six inches of snow and it was still dark as all get out and I caught that fish around five o'clock in the evening and when I first caught it it weighed 30 pounds on an unofficial scale when I had it officially weighed four hours later it was 27 pounds three ounces and if it weren't for that weather pattern I probably would have never seen that fish so again I follow the weather patterns. If I've got the right weather, I'm going to be on the lake fishing for the big boys. If I don't, I'm going to go to the streams and try and fish to the fish that are already in the streams. It, that's the way I play the game, and, and it really behooves me to be in the right place at the right time. Well, one thing that you've, you know, you've kind of alluded to and, and talked to directly several times, I think, is that these browns are um, a bit shy, and the, the weather and the darkness uh, and the deep water all give them cover, which is, is what they're looking for. You know, the word shy works, but I would call it sensitive. Uh, I think a brown trout, the bigger and older it gets, the more sensitive it is to anything and everything that has to do with its survival. And what I find 
on the Great Lakes is even though those big guys are living out in that lake most of the year, that as soon as they hit that river and as soon as they get cast over, fished over, or people moving around, making noise, shuffling their feet, they go right back down to the uh, estuaries uh, below where, the, where it's safe. They get away from the fishing pressure if everybody's making a lot of noise, a lot of racket, and overcasting. And it's those little things that make a big difference with a sensitive fish. And that applies to even big steelhead and rainbows. You never want to be uh, false casting over those guys too many times, and, and that, that little thing in itself will prevent you from catching many of the big fish. And hitting the water two or three times with your fly line and, and the fish is out there, that will spook it. And again, it's because they're so sensitive to anything that's dangerous, and that's noises, uh, shadows, anything that that fish has survived through its whole life to get big will will definitely uh, uh, spook them off in a hurry. And those are the mistakes you can't make when you're fishing for big fish. Well, I've got a question, and I'm sorry, I'm not finding the fellow who asked it, but. Uh, uh, the question basically relates to these tributaries. Is there an opportunity for a canoer? And I guess the, uh, the, an extension of that would be uh, how about uh, the individual pontoon boat or float tube? Is there any opportunity for those? In the fall, I, I would say very dangerous situation. I wouldn't take a chance doing that at all. But there are a few places you could do it, and those are in the protected marinas, and a few of the estuaries that you have a, a good distance from the main river to the lake itself. Uh, by all means, stay off the lake in the fall. It's extremely dangerous, and you don't even hardly ever see the boats out there, the big boats at all. It gets real bad real quick. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but you could do it in a couple of the big estuaries, which is like Oak Orchard and uh, 18 Mile, and you could do it in some of the protected bays real close to shore, but uh, I wouldn't recommend it, and I'd be extremely careful. You, you don't want to just put it out in the lake anywhere because uh, you'd be in a, a lot of trouble real quick with, if the wind uh, should happen to switch. Well, you could always plan on a trip in Canada real quick because you would go across the lake. Well, <laughs> another question here, uh, and the person is from, he has down here North Carolina and Colorado, but didn't give a name. Uh, and he's talking about areas in, in, by him, but, but the same rules may apply, so maybe you can address it. Um, he says, how, how far up did the big browns migrate from the lake? And you said as far as they can go. I know that. Correct. And uh, uh, he says, a lake near his home has large browns, but the tribs are usually very muddy with irrigation return. It does, however, clear a number of miles upstream. Will they just swim through the muddy water and spawn, or spawn in the muddy water or turn around and go back to another trip? Or what, what do they do? They love the muddy water. Uh, the muddier the water, the safer a brown trout will feel. So he'll, the browns will definitely be in the muddy water. Problem is fishing to the fish. If it's too muddy and it can't see your fly, then, then it's like beating a dead horse. You just can't get anything done unless the water clears just enough for the fish to see. And we use special flies in murky water and slightly muddy water that really work. And I use my best patterns with a tinsel strap across the back, one piece of thick tinsel tied across the back, and it hangs out the back, and it, it's called a tag nymph or a tag wet fly, and it works really good in off-color water, and 
you just have to remember the that that doesn't prevent the fish from going into it at all. They prefer it to be off color because they feel safer. They don't have uh, the problems they have in clear water. Now, they'll go up to the clear water and spawn in it if it's high enough. If it's low clear water above the muddy water, they're going to stay in that muddy water and they're going to spawn in that muddy water. They're just not going to take a chance unless they're not being hassled or harassed at all. And I have seen big browns go into some shallow water way upriver when nobody's bothering them. But if there's a lot of fishing pressure and guys walk in the river, they get out of that pretty quick, and they'll go to wherever the water is safe. They go to sanctuary. Well, let's take a brief uh, break here. When we return, Joe will be answering more of your questions about catching those monster trout and salmon in the Great Lakes. Jaeger's Fly Shop is your sponsor for this segment of our show. Online since 1998, Tim and Deb Yeager operate their brick-and-mortar shop in Lawrence, Kansas, loaded with the best brands such as Sage, Scott, Ross, Sims, and much more. Nestled in the big heart of Big Bass Country, Yeager's offers a full-line pro shop and guide service where you can enjoy the beautiful Kansas Flint Hills and catch trophy bass. Tim and Deb offer the friendliest of customer service whether you walk in the door or order online. Place your order on their fully secured website, and it usually ships the same day. Mention this ad and receive 10% off your next web order. You can reach Jaegers toll-free at 866-359-7467 or on the web at www.jaegersflies.com. That's Y-A-G-E-R-S flies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Joe Butler about fly fishing for big browns and salmon and steelhead in the Great Lakes tributaries. If you'd like to ask Joe a question, go to our home site at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask Joe your most important question. We're getting to as many questions as we can tonight. Okay, well, let's say you had made your plan for Oak Orchard. You've heard what uh, you have to say. You're going to have to make some, some changes. There's no, uh, no weather planned. Uh, what's a guy do at that point? Well, you know, they, they should stay in contact with people. Uh, networking is the key to my success. I have a lot of good sources of information in areas that I don't live in, and I would always be contacting some of those good sources. And there's some great shops out there on the Great Lakes. Uh, you've got the New Orleans Fly Shop. You've got Narvi's. You've got uh, the, the fly shops over by uh, uh, Rochester. And uh, these guys are all pretty darn good, and, and they want you to be successful because that's what makes their business work. And I would be checking with them, and at, at the very least, call me. Uh, you know, I run trips up there every year or come with me your first year and learn the ropes, and then you can go as many years as you want. That's what I suggest to a lot of people. I do have a lot of repeat business because they know I'm always going to be on top of the game and they're never going to have to hunt fish because I'm going to already know where they're at. So I would uh, use any source of information possible. I've got in my book, Big Trout on Flies, I've got a chapter on the Great Lakes. That will help you out. Um, the, the streams, there's a bunch of streams, and they're all good, but they have to have water. This last year, we had so much rain and snow, we had streams that never were fishable doing really good, like Keg Creek, uh, Yanty Creek, Bald Eagle. Those are streams that are normally an inch deep and two feet wide. This year, they look like uh, 
the South Platte River because of all the water. So they were good fishing. You need to know that information in advance. And Oak Orchard, I wouldn't totally kiss it off. I wouldn't say don't fish it. I, but you have to be there at the prime time. It still has a good run of big king salmon. The browns just aren't as thick as they used to be, and they're a lot tougher now. But there's still some around, and they get some good steelhead fishing in there. And uh, But I, I would recommend the other streams, the other waters, uh, virtually any of them, all the way from Pulaski all the way down to Niagara, can be good. I mean, I fish all of them at different times, but I'm on top of when to fish them. I fish 12-mile, uh, 18-mile, Marsh Creek, Sandy, Oak Orchard, Johnson Creek, Webster Creek. I, I mean, I fish them all, but not at just any given time because half the time they're not even fishable. So, again, it really pays to, to network and be checking. Uh, if you're going to plan a trip up there on your own, it's going to be a crapshoot. Uh, I would go with a local guide service or go with me that first year at least and learn the ropes. And uh, from then on, uh, you can do it yourself. But to do that in the beginning, you're just wasting your time and energy because you're, you're going to spend half your time uh, looking in waters that don't have fish. And so by all means, give a guy like me a call or the boys up there at the Great Lakes. They'll help you out. Well, cause to kind of sum this up, Joe, from, from what I've heard is, and, and one of the questions that came in is, how do you decide where to fish? And, you know, John Matthew from Toronto, Ontario, uh, in that question. But basically, it's a simple question, but a complex answer, as you stated. And it it sounds like, in, you know, you could be get out of your car at a stream up there, and the conditions could be poor, but then the next question is, where might they be good? And only years of experience is going to tell you where they might be good without driving in circles around New York State, it sounds like. So, you know, I kind of would suggest uh, you avoid the waters that are getting all the publicity because for sure they're going to be crowded. Now, if you have some waters that don't get a lot of publicity and they are crowded, that generally means there's a lot of fish in those waters. Now, I have clients that will go with me to a piece of water where we'll look and see uh, quite a few people fishing a certain body of water and I and I'll tell them okay we're going to fish here and they'll go well Joe isn't it crowded and I said well bear with me most of the crowds on the Toronto side and the uh, side that I fish are are morning locals they're out there in the morning they're fishing till lunchtime and then they're going home and even on those really crowded waters uh, some of which are qu quite crowded if you got there at about 1:30 in the afternoon Half the crowd leaves because it's a local crowd, and they're, they're going home. And they're going home to lunch, they're going home to stay, and the river just opens up, even on the crowded water. So the afternoons is when you want to fish the waters that are normally crowded. Now, the smaller streams, you can go up those things for miles and miles, like Chautauqua Creek or, or Canada Way or uh, 18 Mile, and you can go way up those things, and you can avoid the crowds. You can have water totally to yourself. Marsh Creek, Johnson Creek, you can go up for 20 miles and get water to uh, fish that's totally vacant of fishing pressure. And as long as there's adequate flow, the fish will be there. And uh, I, would, I would advise anybody that doesn't want to fish around crowds to be exploring the smaller streams. Uh, go up Upper Sandy, uh, go up uh, the waters I already mentioned, and you'll get away from fishing pressure. Uh, or go to the crowded streams in the afternoon. Uh, a lot of those guys are going to head home. 
Well, one of the things you just mentioned is, is you know, a stream with 20 miles of length. What are what is the access rights there to these streams as compared to the west, uh, where we, we do have uh, quite a bit of problems? Well, it's changing every year, and uh, fortunately, this past year, because they started having some problems, they're starting to open it up and and take charge of what they need to do, and they have uh, they have some uh, a few guys who have bought some pieces of property along the river and have deeded uh, rights to the water too, and they've closed it down. But that's very, very limited, not many of them. Uh, quite frankly, the Great Lakes streams have stayed more open than any waters I've ever fished anywhere, thank the good Lord, because uh, there are a few guys who have uh, put up uh, signs and have closed it to people, and you have to respect their, their right to do that. But very few places, and none that I fish, are private. And the newest laws up there are opening waters up to the high water level unless it was in the deed that the guy owns the water, uh, the bottom of the stream bed, which very few deeds stated. A few did. And those guys that have that can post it and keep you out of the water. But fortunately, that is very rare and you hardly ever see it. And I avoid those places like the plague because those waters used to be open, but lately there's been a couple that have posted them, and that's within their rights, but I just avoid them. What kind of licenses and stamps do you need uh, for the different species? Very inexpensive. You can fish uh, the whole week for, I think it's, uh, oh gosh, 20, 20 bucks, 27 bucks. No, uh, just one little special stamp. I think it's a dollar or two stamp. And then uh, uh, for a season, and like me, I'm up there two months, October, November, I buy a season uh, license, and it only cost me oh, about 60 or 70 bucks. I can't even remember now. But it's very reasonable. One of the great things about fishing the Great Lakes, uh, everything is, uh, is reasonable. Food out there is really reasonable. Great restaurants, great cafes. Uh, the a guy who likes to have a drink or two for an evening cocktail, it's, they don't gouge you. They, it's very inexpensive. Uh, the, the motels are very inexpensive. Uh, for the most part, economically, it's one of the most reasonable areas in the country, possibly the world, to fish for fish of a lifetime. And I would put it up against any fishery anywhere. And that includes Tierra del Fuego, Argentina, which is reputed to be the best brown trout fishing in the world. I would argue that point. And uh, uh, quite frankly, I think this area is better. But uh, they have caught some really big fish down in the, the, that area because they're sea-run browns, and they tend to get really big. Sure, sure. Well, now, we're primarily talking about fishing in New York State. Uh, are there other states that uh, have a similar uh, situation, or do you ever go up into Canada? I have explored most of the Great Lakes. I started off on Lake Michigan and uh, Wisconsin area, and uh, I was fairly disappointed. I did get king salmon and steelhead and saw a couple good browns, but I didn't see the browns like I saw at Lake Ontario. Lake Ontario, without question, has the greatest number of browns, and I've read and heard that on the Toronto can Canadian side, it uh, is very good also, but there's a lot of pressure over there because Toronto uh, and all of its suburbs has uh, an incredible number of uh, people. 
So I haven't gone over there because I heard it was very popular uh, over there for fishermen. I stayed away from Pulaski, which is directly east of where I'm at, because that's where it first started on Lake Ontario, and a good number of fishermen were up in that region. So I started exploring areas that didn't have the pressure. That's why I got down near Niagara. And then uh, I've got a friend that's found some good brown trout fishing in Lake Huron, and I hear the steelhead are really, really good on Lake Superior. Uh, Lake Erie, without question, is going to be the next super fishery, and that just has begun the last few years. So you really have a lot of options, and for a guy who likes to explore and stay on top of things, he's going to see some great opportunity on Lake Erie and uh, Lake Huron. Uh, I oh, think Lake Erie. Ontario has been uh, pretty much found out just about everywhere to fish. On Erie, uh, wasn't that the Great Lake that was was um, just about dead at one point? Yeah, it was. Uh, but again, all that's changed. All yeah, all of the waters now are cleaner than they've ever been. The purity of the waters in the Great Lakes is better than has ever been because of the zebra mussel. They have this zebra mussel that got introduced into those lakes about 15 years ago, which has taken over the, the lakes. And a zebra mussel in its lifetime, it purifies one cubic foot of water each zebra mussel. So because there's zillions of them, the waters now are clearer and purer than they ever have been. Now, the ground tables of the Great Lakes are still polluted, but because they quit all this discharge into the rivers from the factories, the uh, silt from the spring runoff is starting to cover up all the polluted ground tables. So within the next 15 to 25 years, I've heard from some experts and a guy doing his Ph.D. on the, pur the, uh, the purity of the Great Lakes, he told me that uh, you would virtually find no pollutants capable of being transferred to the fish in 15 to 25 years because the, uh, the roots of the moss and the weeds that go into the ground tables will, in a short period of time, start to be above the, the toxic ground tables. And that's where the problem is today. You still have some of that. So you have uh, bottom-feeding fish that are still uh, tainted and, and have uh, some of the pollutants in them. But the free-swimming fish, the salmon, the trout, less and less every year. And now they don't even have advisories on some of the fish. But you still have to be careful. You don't want to be uh, uh, eating any of the fat, fatty tissues and uh, it's not recommended for children or pregnant women to right. eat any of the fish, even today. But every year, it's getting better and better. If you're 85 years old, eat all the fish you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's 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 a great success story to hear happening. Um, it definitely. actually is. It's uh, yeah. it's so much better than it used to be, and I, I like to spread the word on that because most people just remember the toxic that, times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Joe, let's. Uh, we're, we're running short of time here, so let's move on to equipment. Um, what what equipment do you recommend uh, to take up there if you're fishing for the browns and the steelheads and the, and the salmon? Depending on your level of expertise, I would recommend a good stiff action seven weight. You can land virtually everything on it. If a guy's uh, an expert fisherman, a seven weight's going to catch everything, including the king salmon. If a guy is a novice or, or new at this game, then I would suggest an 8-weight, possibly even a 9-weight, if you're going to fish for the king salmon. Now, I personally love a rod that I have special made. 
and I, I sell a rod that is perfect for a guy who's into nymphing for big fish. And it's a six weight, but it's a stiff action six weight. And it's one that I designed about 20 years ago, and I'm producing them now, and I sell them because I know they work, and it's all I use. And it's the only six weight I would recommend for king salmon, brown trout, and steelhead any size. Uh, aside from my rod, I would suggest sevens and eight weights because you need that little stiffer action for those uh, those kind of fish, and you really need to learn how to land those big fish because the trouble spot is when you're when you're getting the fish in close, trying to get it into a net. You can't go too far back with these uh, graphite fly rods; you'll break them. And then uh, reels, you need a good reel, anybody's reel that has a great drag, and you should have at least 150 to 250 yards of backing and fly line. I always use weight forward floating fly lines. I use a new product called a ferruled leader, and uh, put the tippet on the ferruled leader, and those things are phenomenal because we do mostly roll casting on the streams of the Great Lakes. Too much overhand casting just spooks fish, and you're also you're fishing too far. A lot of the fish that we are fishing for are right in front of us, so good roll casting is the name of the game. And then fluorocarbon, you got to have fluorocarbon. And then if you tie flies or you buy them, make sure it's thick wire, wide gap hooks. And I tie all my flies for my clients because I tie just on thick wire, wide gap hooks to prevent that old story about, oh, you should have seen the one I had if it hadn't straightened, straightened my hook out. I don't want to hear that story anymore, so I tie my own hooks. Sure, sure. Now, specifically with this furled leader that you're, you've mentioned, Joe, how do you treat that? Do you, uh, do you put a, a sinking uh, material on it to facilitate getting down with your fly? No, it's a, actually it's it's already set the fish with. You don't make any adjustments. And what I do is I just put it straight onto my fly line, and uh, it's a seven and a half foot uh, ferruled leader, and it's tapered, and it allows you to roll cast beautifully. I am a good roll caster with the ferruled leader. I am a great roll caster, and that's mostly what I do on the streams that I fish. And then I put on a two foot fluorocarbon tippet onto the ferrule leader. So I'm actually fishing with about a nine-and-a-half-foot uh, total leader to my fly line. And I keep changing the tippets as I need to, and that allows me to have fresh tippet on throughout the day. That's one of the reasons why I land so many big fish. I'm not dependent on a nine-foot standard monofilament leader that breaks down and gets nicks in it and has all kinds of problems. The ferrule leader will hold up against anything. And I, I love them. And you put it on, and it lasts you all year. All you have to do is change tippets. Hmm. And a, a friend of mine makes those out here, and he's been giving them to me for about three and a half years, and I will never, ever fish without them again. They have definitely added to my game more than anything that I've used in a long time. Yeah, they're amazing. I, I have one that uh, a fellow gave me, and you can suspend that thing uh, just, just casting the leader itself. Uh, with your hand. Uh, it's amazing how the, the handling characteristics of that. Oh, and you know, like the wind. Uh, if A lot of times you're out there on a windy, cold, snowy day or rainy day, and 
with the feral leader, it cuts right through the wind. I have no disadvantages with the feral leader, whereas I used to struggle with everything, depending on the elements. And now uh, that's one of the reasons why I'll never take it off, whether it's a calm day or a windy day. It just works all the time. Yeah. Well, Joe, we need to take a, a short break again. And um, when we come back, we'll, we'll talk more about uh, the flies you use and the, the, the presentation and strategies you use. Joe Butler, Lefty Cray, Dave Whitlock, Bob Clouser, Gary Borger, Jack Dennis, all of these and more fly fishing greats have been involved in the International Sportsman's Expositions over the past 30 years. Each of the five ISE events is the market's largest sportsman's event all year, featuring up to 600 exhibitors, hundreds of seminars and special events, including ISE's own Best of the West Distance Casting Contest and the new Iron Fly Tire Contest. That's Iron Fly Tire, not Iron Chef. Visit www.sportsexpos.com for seminar schedules and more information. Come meet the legends and those who soon may be at the ISE events in California, Colorado, Arizona, and Utah. Well, you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Joe Butler about fly fishing for big brown steelheads and salmon of the Great Lakes tributaries. If you'd like to ask a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link that says click here to ask Joe your most important question. We'll receive the questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them on the show tonight as possible. I read in your book, you, you have some, some uh, definite theories on, on weighting as well. You want to go into how you weight your, your line or your fly? What's your preference? Okay, uh, I never recommend weighting the fly itself except one particular pattern, which is a crayfish fly. And a crayfish fly is a lake fishing fly, and it uh, should be on the bottom. Everything else, like caddises, mayflies, wet flies, whatever else you're using, I, I don't weight the fly because I prefer to have the fly bouncing about two to four inches off the bottom, not on the bottom. And the reason for that is if you looked at a big trout laying on the bottom of a river, because it's got a big fat belly, its mouth is about three to four inches off the bottom. So I'm going to make it as easy on a big fish as possible. I'm going to put a split shot or some lead 24 inches above my pattern, which is non-weighted. And I'm going to let the split shot bounce on the bottom, but the pattern, the fly, is always going to be drifting two to four inches off the bottom. And guess what? That makes it so easy on that big fish just to open his mouth and take my fly. I feel that that little thing in itself is an advantage, and I like all the advantages in my favor. And if you're dragging a pattern on the bottom, a fish will have to tip to pick it up. Now, they will do that. But why would I want to make them work any harder than is necessary? And I think it's those little things that make the difference. So I put a little bit of lead to get it down, not restrict its natural drift. So you've got to play with the sizes of split shot. I use mostly small stuff, and I put them about 24 to 28 inches away from the fly. Do you have any dry fly opportunities out there for, for these uh, fish? I wish we did, but we don't. I have uh, personally been in the middle of caddis storms on the river when it was warm weather and not seen a big trout come up for a caddis. And the reason is they are so well fed with minnows and forage fish, yeah. they're not that interested in emerging patterns, in dry flies. Now, they'll take 
a pheasant tail or a, a caddis pattern or an egg fly because that's just extra food, but you've got to put it right in front of them. To expect a 10- or 12-pound fish to rise up and take a dry in that country is asking too much. And I had two dry fly experts with me one year who chose to dry fly fish for three days to prove my theory wrong. They had zero strikes, zero takes in three days of fishing, and the rest of us were hauling fish in all day long, all three days, on nymphs and wets. Those guys finally put their dries up, and they acknowledged it couldn't be done, and they did find the last couple days of their trip with wet flies. Now, in general, this is a situation where big bait, big fish? Yes and no. Uh, that applies to the streamer imitations. You have to use an imitation that represents the forage up there, and that's mostly a, a smelt and uh, and uh, uh, minnows of the different types of fish, fry. Uh, they stock a lot of fry in the lakes. Uh, you have to imitate whatever that particular uh, fry is that uh, they're eating on. But the smelt is a big deal. Alewives are a big deal. And uh, so you've got to come close to that size, and that's a pretty good size streamer, uh, probably in a size uh, 2 aught or, uh, or 4 aught. And mm. woolly buggers are effective uh, in uh, twos and fours. But... For the most part, I'm using orange caddis nymphs, which are size 10s and sometimes size 12s. That's pretty small. I'm using uh, damselfly and dragonfly larvas, which are like green woolly buggers, and I use those in size 8s, wet fly hooks, and that's the one I have the tinsel strap on the back. And then I'm using a maggot pattern, which is a size 10 or a size 8 and uh, uh, I, I rarely use those any smaller or any bigger. But uh, stoneflies work out there. Uh, a black stonefly in a size 10 or an 8 will work. Uh, pheasant tails and hare's ears work when it's warm weather, and you can catch quite a few fish on size uh, 14 and size 12 pheasant tail, hare's ear during warm weather. But if it's cold weather, forget it. They won't take them. And uh, egg flies, I use bigger than normal egg flies because the big fish would rather eat a cluster pattern than a single egg. So I tie my patterns uh, bigger than most people would normally. And they're, they're quite large, but they don't seem to spook the fish at all. And one of the famous flies out there is called the carpet egg. That imitates clusters. And it was tied by a local fly tire out there years ago, and it worked really good, and it still does. And uh, it's quite a large pattern, known. it's multicolored. I have a similar pattern I use uh, synthetics on, and uh, uh, those seem to be the best patterns, and those are fairly small compared to streamers. So I would have to say it's a little bit of both. Well, Joe, the, um, I know the orange caddis is one of your favorite flies, and you've caught a lot of fish on that. Um, can you describe uh, how you tie the orange caddis uh, and also this carpet egg fly, uh, how that's tied, or, and what may, maybe more definitively what it looks like? Okay. Uh, the orange caddis is a takeoff from the original Butler Special Nymph, which I created 40-some years ago, and it imitated gray caddises. And my first super fly that I created when I started nymph fishing was the gray caddis nymph called the Butler Special. So 
over the years, I had uh, created more colors of the same fly, and a, a tan butler special is extremely good. A brown one, a black one, a green one all work really well. And then about 20 years ago, I was experimenting with reds and oranges. And unbeknownst to me, I was imitating dead shrimp, dead scuds, and eggs with a caddis body. And what I call it is a double whammy fly. I tie it with four, uh, four to two strands of orange yarn, depending on the size of the hook. And then I put a pheasant tail backstrap for the wing case. And then I have a soft hackle, which is a saddle hackle, either brown or gray as the uh, hackle. And that's very soft. I don't use bristled, stiff hackles on my wets or nymphs. And it's a real simple pattern, but it's a double whammy fly. It is orange, which imitates eggs, and it is a caddis body, which imitates caddis. So you got two things working for you, and that's why I call it a double whammy. And it is, without question, my number one spring and fall pattern wherever big fish are, and I use it across the country, everywhere I go. It's a killer pattern when something is spawning. And it also works when the rivers rise and a lot of scuds and shrimp are coming out of the lakes into the river. And when they die, they turn orange. So you got that as a good imitation too. So uh, that's the, the why and the when and the where of the orange caddis. But then the other flies, uh, what was the other one you asked me about? The, the carpet egg. Carpet egg. That was created by a fly tire and a guide out in New York the first years we went out there. Uh, his name was Mark something. I can't remember his last name. But uh, it was a, a local pattern that we heard about. So I picked it up, and, oh, man, that was a killer pattern. The first few years uh, we were fishing out there, when the fishing was tough, we put that on, and it always caught fish. And it's well-known. It's used a lot by a lot of people. So nowadays I'd have to say it's not a super pattern, but it still works. You should by all means have a few with you. Uh, whenever you go out there. Well, real quickly to kind of finish up with flies here, when we're talking about these flies, are, are we talking just browns here, or uh, what kind of streamers or flies are you using for the steelhead and the, and the salmon? Are we more streamers well, there? Oh, yeah. Streamers work great when the river rises and the water is not too cold. Uh, when the fish are real active and you see a lot of surging fish, if you see a lot of moving fish, uh, that means the water temperature is good, and they'll chase streamers. But if the water's ice cold, they won't touch a streamer. So what we do then is we use swing patterns and drift patterns to the fish that are just lying down in the riffles and the runs and the holes, and they're not moving a lot because the water's cold. And that's when my orange caddis and egg flies work the best. Now, the uh, maggot pattern works great when the rivers rise and dead king salmon on the side of the rivers, some of them will have maggots in their carcasses, and when those things hit the water, all bets are off. The fish go off of the other flies, and they'll start eating the maggots. Now, there's also an egg called old eggs. When fish go off of fresh eggs, which usually is two or three weeks into the season when everybody's been using them, fish have been hooked on them, they go off of the fresh egg patterns. They'll go to what we call old eggs, which are eggs that have been laying on the bottom for quite a while, we tie it with dark yarn, purple, blue, and light blue, and a little bit of white. And that's old eggs. Those work really good uh, as the season progresses. And uh, those 
those are the little things that make the big differences uh, of that kind of fishing. Great. Well, I think that's really going to be uh, uh, filling in the blanks. Uh, Steve Lamb is a guide down in Georgia who asked uh, several questions about uh, uh, streamers there. If you had to pick one fly as your go-to for big browns, you can only take one fly, what's it going to be? Well, the last five years, I'd probably have to say the damsel dragonfly larva with the, the tinsel strap. Hmm. Uh, up to then, I'd have to have said the orange caddis. But uh, I've been getting more big fish on that damsel dragonfly larva. And I think the reason is when the fish first come into the rivers from the lake, they're still thinking lake foods. They haven't been in the river long enough to realize that there's eggs everywhere, and they will eventually switch to the eggs. But when they first come in, they're still thinking lake food, and they love damselfly larvas and dragonfly larvas whenever they can get them. And when they enter those estuaries, there's a lot of that kind of insect around, so they're, they're, they're in tune with them. And I use those, uh, oh, man, effectively probably more so than anything else nowadays. That's a killer pattern all over the place. Okay. Well, you've, you've decided you're working a certain body of water. What's your strategy? Are you, are you going after fish that you've sighted, or are you blind casting, and how, how are you approaching them? Well, we'll target different streams for different fish. If okay. my uh, guys, my clients want to go after browns, I, I take them to three or four of my favorite spots. If they said steelhead, I go over to Lake Erie and fish the steelhead waters. And uh, one of the things I learned about steelhead about three years ago, which will help these guys that are living in that area, is uh, your best fishing is, a, is from 1 o'clock in the afternoon to dark when the water has warmed up and the steelhead start to uh, uh, rise off the bottom. When they come up and they start to sub just sit underneath the, the uh, surface and you'll see them shooting up the rapids and trying to jump up the waterfalls, I take the weight off and I put on an orange caddis, and I high stick them. And, uh, boy, steelheading with the uh, orange caddis just below the surface a couple inches when the fish are just barely submerged below the surface is a deadly technique because you're putting the fly right in front of his nose. And the locals up there who are still drifting their nymphs and their salmon eggs and their whatevers with weight are dragging below those fish that are starting to uh, come up in the water column. And the fish don't go down to feed once they've come up. And we get them really good with what we call high sticking. And I did that with the Cabela's people last year. And we, we uh, in one afternoon, hooked 27 steelhead, high sticking them, and landed 24. And Cabela's said that was the best steelheading they've ever seen. Well, Joe Gavin from New Zealand uh, wrote, and maybe this is what you're referring to as high sticking. He says, do you still short line nymph fish with a five rod spooled with just four pound mono as described in your book, uh, Trout's Choice, or do you prefer a different method? Is that what you're talking about? No, I, uh, oh. I haven't mono fished off my fly rod in probably 17, 18 years. I gave it up years ago because I started using the uh, weight forward floating lines and I started to get good enough where I was starting to enjoy it more. And then as I got really good with the uh, fly lines, I didn't want to go back to the mono because I felt I had evolved. And, you know, it was just a process of me growing into a, a new system and a new technique. And I just love fishing with a fly rod, a fly reel, and a fly line now with the way I set it up. 
and I haven't used my mono system in, gosh, almost 15, 16 years. And uh, not, not to say it's not a great system. It's deadly. I could catch a lot, a lot of fish on that method. But I just enjoy it more with the fly lines now. And the fly line gives me a, a, an ability to see strikes that I didn't have with my mono system. And uh, back with the mono system, I had to detect strikes by feel. With a fly line, I can, uh, I can control slack and I can see the strikes. And that's the key to fly fishing uh, with, for big fish is to always control your slack and be able to see your fly line hesitate or move when a fish has taken the, uh, the, uh, the pattern. And the key to that is, is mending properly. Too many guys that I've fished with over-mend or under-mend. And, boy, once you've learned to mend properly, you, you're going to be in charge of all your nymphing, and you won't miss very many strikes ever again. Do you use an indicator at all? I don't, no, because uh, I don't need one. I recommend indicators to beginners, people who are just learning to nymph fish, and uh, it's a good beginner tool because it shows you strikes that you wouldn't have detected because you're not controlling the slack. But once you've re reached an, uh, a, a place where you feel you're a good nymph fisherman, you would be doing yourself a big favor to take that thing off and start learning strike detection from all the other manners. And that's why I have a, a white tip on my fly rod. That's why I uh, put a little bit of uh, amnesia between my fly line and my uh, uh, feral leader. Sure. Uh, uh, that's why I have bright fly lines, because I'm watching everything else for strike detection. And uh, I would never use an indicator unless it was ice-cold water and there were n no active fish, and I had to detect the slightest takes then an indicator still plays into the game, but that's very rare that I would ever use that. Hmm. Are, are these pretty big waters? Uh, are they big enough to justify spay rods? Not at all. Uh, all the streams we fish are small to medium. I don't fish the big streams. A spay guy could probably go to Oak Orchard or to the Genesee or the Oswego or the Salmon and do just fine. But in all the streams I fish, you would be overcasting and, and fishing over most of the fish. And there would be no point in using a rod like that in more, most of my waters. But if a guy is a spay fisherman, those four streams I just listed would be the places to go for that kind of fishing. Okay. Joe, what about uh, situations when they're not spawning? Can you give some just general tips on locating big trout when they're not spawning in both streams and lakes? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I fish both lakes and streams all year round, and the reason is sometimes they're just not in the streams. They are in the lakes. And when they are in the streams, I want to fish them for them in the streams. And uh, when they're in streams, they're not spawning. Let's say they're just there because they're feeding on uh, caddises or mayflies. Uh, the big fish is always going to be the toughest fish to spot. He's always going to uh, hide. He's going to be on what I call dark bottoms. Whenever you're looking out in a stream and you see a lot of light-colored gravel and light bottom, that's not where the big fish will be. He will be in those uh, strips of dark green bottoms or black bottoms, any place that he knows his shadow can't be seen. And he, that's where he will be. He'll be in the heavy riffles. If I go to a stream and there's a lot of guys fishing and they got there before I did, 
I go right straight to the fast, heavy water and put a little extra lead on because I know those guys have already spooked the big fish out of the slow water into the heavy, fast stuff. And that is a real smart thing to do on the rivers out here in Colorado or in Wyoming, Montana, depending on fishing pressure. And you go to a small stream and there's been 15 guys in front of you, they push everything out of that uh, that dead water, that deep water, and uh, your best bet would be in the fastest, royalest uh, water you can find, and that's where I would fish. And uh, spotting big fish is uh, great when you can do it, and I love to do it, and I'm probably as good at it as anybody, but it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes I just have to look for the water I know the fish is going to be in, and that's the dark water, the dark, deeper water and the fast, broken, choppy riffles. Do you ever fish at night? I never do, and uh, I just never got into it. I know it, it works. I know some guys that swear by it. It just doesn't appeal to me. I, I like to see what's going on. I, I'd just as soon be uh, somewhere else at night, and uh, I enjoy my days so much. Uh, I will fish from morning till dark, but nighttime fishing just doesn't uh, do it for me. I'm not uh, into it, and I don't think I ever will be at this late stage of the game. All right. Well, Scott Rogers in Denver would like to get his dad into a big brown, and he wonders a uh, uh, couple things. Uh, sounds like you've described the area he ought to go to. Uh, what the cost might be and how long a trip uh, would you recommend? Well, if he joins me, my trips are week-long trips. The, the total cost is 19.95, and uh, I get a lot of uh, families and husband-wives and son and fathers, and I had an 85-year-old last year with his son, and they did great, and uh, I would by all means recommend the uh, Great Lakes trip because it's the one trip that I guarantee results on. Uh, I guarantee that they will catch more big trout, browns and steelhead than they ever have in their life. Money back guarantee, and I have never had to give anybody their money back, so it must be working. And uh, that would be the trip for him and his dad. And I've got waters up there where we go to. You don't have to work hard. You don't have to walk far. So it's not like he has to bust his back to get to the best waters. We don't have to do that. But in retrospect, if a young guy wants to come, I've got waters they can walk for miles on and not see anybody. So, you know, I have a lot of options. And what I do is I sit down with everybody that goes with me, and I, I go over what they want, and then I fill in the blanks as we get up there. Uh, Joe, what would be the average size brown a person would catch up there, and, and is a week a, a good length of time to stay up there? Yes, a week is perfect, and uh, uh, the average brown in a couple of my streams will go from uh, 6 to 12 pounds. Uh, one stream I fished, the average brown is still around 10 to 11 pounds, and uh, there's a couple other waters where we have a, a good shot at the 15 to 25 pounders, and I know where those fish will be, and we will be into them, and we'll see them. Uh, but uh, you know, it's just a matter of numbers. Uh, when you fish the waters that have the 15 to 25 pounders, you don't get as much uh, activity and as much action as you would if you were satisfied with the uh, six to 12 pounders and the occasional 15 pounder. And uh, we've had many clients that have landed 25 to 30 big fish a day, but we've also had days where it was tough fishing, and the very worst scenario would be uh, a sunny, bright day. Uh, I 
would still say we would still be into anywhere from 10 to 20 fish, even on those kind of days. And that's just because I know where the fish are and I know what to use. So you have a, a worst-case scenario. You can have a best-case scenario where you hook 100 of the biggest fish you ever hooked in your life and maybe land 25 of them. Well, it sounds like a wonderful place to go fish, and uh, certainly from what we've heard tonight, uh, it sounds like someone should go with you or someone that knows what they're doing because it's just not a, a simple, uh, simple process up there. But unfortunately, Joe, we're, we're out of time. It's time to wrap things up. And um, when we return, we're going to stick with us, Joe, here because we're going to be giving your book away here in a few minutes. But when we return, we're going to be drawing for a one-year subscription of Fly Fusion Magazine, those tickets to the ISE events, and Joe Butler's book on uh, Big Trout on Fly. So stay tuned to see if you win. The Federation of Fly Fishers is offering a series of seminars at many of the fly fishing shows, which Chuck Ferimsky and his associates uh, have around the country. You can go to www.flyfishingshow.com for dates and locations. The seminars are called from Beginner to Expert, the FFF Classic Reference Series. The Federation charges a nominal fee of $25, and that includes, along with the seminar, a one-year free membership in the Federation. Their instructional approach is a bit unique in that they give you a copy of the lecture materials, which you can actually use to take notes, and as a result, you'll have a great reference tool for the future. For more information, contact the Federation headquarters at 406 Two 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 nine three six nine. That's four zero six two 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 nine three six nine. From our global events calendar tonight, the Amador Fly Fishers in North California will be holding their monthly meeting on Tuesday, January sixteenth at seven p.m. The program includes Jerry Murakoshi, and that's a name that should be familiar to folks who've been following Ask About Fly Fishing. Jay's presentation will be on fly fishing for striped bass. For more details, as well as contact information for Dustin Roxgold, their president, go to the events calendar and click on California. And don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their fly fishing-related happenings on the events calendar. We'll be highlighting one event on each of our shows. Just a couple uh, quick reminders here. Before you leave the website tonight, we'd appreciate it if you just took a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section on our tonight's show that says, what did you think about this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd, we'd really appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away one-year subscription to Fly Fusion, a premier fly fishing magazine. And the way we do it is to use our registration database. And I just press the magic computer button here, and it picks one of the <laughs> people that registered on tonight's show. Now, if you haven't registered yet, it's too late. Um, you'll have to register for the next show. But do so because we give away a lot of great gifts. So for the Fly Fusion one-year subscription, I'm going to pick a winner. And the winner is Carol Oglesby. Carol Oglesby, and she is in Colorado. So uh, congratulations, Carol, on that one-year subscription. I know you'll enjoy it. Yeah. And by the way, Fly Fusion Magazine will be at the uh, Denver Fly Fishing Show here at the end of uh, this week, so you might check in with them there. Now we have uh, two winners for the... Um, the ISE shows, and these are a pair of tickets each, so we're going to pick two winners. And the first winner is Kenneth Plank, again in Colorado, Kenneth Plank. And we'll tell you, uh, we'll be sending you emails on how to collect these tickets and so forth after the show and your subscription, Carol. 
Uh, and the second winner is Xavier uh, Reca. Xavier Reca, Reza, um, and he's from California. So those are our two winners for the ISE pair of tickets each. So enjoy those. There are shows yeah. in both Colorado and California, so hopefully you can attend one of those shows. Now, the final winner, and this is for Joe Butler's book, and uh, I highly recommend, uh, if you don't win tonight, you should call Joe up and, and ask to purchase one from him because it's got information about a lot of different things. We're talking about Flaming Gorge uh, in Utah, Colorado. We're talking about uh, South Platte River, Dillon Reservoir in Colorado, Williams Fork, Pyramid Lake in Nevada, West Yellowstone, and then the New York section that we've been talking about tonight. Uh, talks about leaders, flies, and so forth. A great, great book on uh, on fishing uh, the West and other parts of the country. So let's pick our winner there, and, and I'm sure you can just call uh, Joe at his number. And Joe, what's your number again? 720-635-2656. So if you'd like to pick up a book, if you're not the lucky winner, then uh, that's how you'll have to get it. So let's see who that lucky winner is. Barb... DeMott in Montana, Barb DeMott in Montana. So, Barb, you're the lucky winner, and you'll be receiving that autographed copy of, uh, of Joe's book. So, um, okay. Congratulations, all of you. Well, Joe, uh, we can't tell you how much we appreciate your taking the time to be with us tonight. I'm really thinking that I need to get back uh, east and visit my in-laws and uh, go chasing after some of these browns and kings and steelhead that you've been uh, uh, talking about in New York State. I uh, hope you'll maybe find time to join us again in the future. Gentlemen, it's been a ball for me. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, always love to talk fishing, and I hope you do get out there to the Great Lakes because uh, it's probably the finest big fish fishery in the world and uh, still lots of room for lots of people. Well, great. Thank, thank you, Joe. And um, on our next broadcast, will be, which will be on January 17th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. On that show, we'll be interviewing Ted Lund, and our topic for the show will be the Aussie Expedition. Ted Lund, the editor of Fly Fishing in Saltwaters magazine, has just returned from an extraordinary expedition to Australia in the Coral Sea. He'll be sharing his experiences on planning the trip and fishing for, for fish such as the dog-toothed tuna, uh, bluefin, trevally, and coral trout, and many more exotic fish. So tune in with us uh, in two weeks from today and listen in. Uh, we'd like to thank R.L. Winston Rod Company, the Western Canadian Fly Fishing Exposition, Jaeger's Fly Shop, International Sportsman's Exposition, and the Federation of Fly Fishers for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com. And thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.